Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So the founder that we have today, a female founder, really, really accomplished. I think that we're going to learn a lot from her, uh, especially when it comes down to educating investors on a product that maybe they're not going to be using. So uh, I guess without further ado, let me welcome our guest today to the show, Alexandra Friedman. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So let me ask you this. So you were born and raised in New York. So, I mean, you're like one of a kind because uh, one, <laughs> New York is like a big United Nation. So, uh, so how was life growing up here? I mean, I have always loved living in New York. I'm here still um, <laughs> more than three decades later. I think I have always had a lot of great exposure to different ways of thinking um, and have benefited a lot from being here. And then you decided to go to Dartmouth. That's true. Um, any any good city kid knows they have to spend some time in the country life just to be a little bit more well-rounded. So I very intentionally moved up to Hanover, New Hampshire when I was 18 to live a different way of life. And it was so much fun to be there. And, and New Hampshire is actually beautiful. So, so tell me about this. Why business? I originally thought I was going to be a journalist, actually, when I was in high school and college. I wrote a lot and was the editor of the school newspaper and loved um, learning other people's stories and framing them. But towards the middle to the end of college, realized I also cared a lot about supporting myself and started to think about how could I actually do that and started looking at business jobs um, and realized that you know, going into consulting would be an interesting way to exercise the same muscle as journalism where I was observing and framing up stories and kind of making decisions based on that. So that's what I did. And this was private equity, a consulting type of work. Is that right? Yeah, it was private equity due diligence. So it was three week projects, um, partnering right. with private equity firms to help them assess whether or not to invest. So what did you learn about the good deals that, des that deserved an investment? What did I learn about the good deals that were what? That deserved yeah. an investment? Yeah, because there's patterns here, right, uh, Alex? So I guess, uh, you know, on, on those that you were actually saying, hey, you know, I think that this this is a good one. This is a good opportunity. Uh, what I guess, like from all those different deals that you saw and, and, you know, were there any patterns there that you were able to recognize on on the actual good opportunities? 
you're really stretching me here because this was 15 years ago. Um, <laughs> the, the, the diligence was market focused. So it was towards the end of a diligence process where a firm had more or less decided to make an investment. And we were doing the final screen on how big is the market? You know, what are the, what is the share position of the dominant player and the others? And is there actually an opportunity to disrupt here? And more often than not, there was because of the stage we were in the process, but every now and then um, we had the pleasure of killing a deal because it didn't look like there was an opportunity that matched a company's capabilities. So it was really interesting to just, you know, kind of be, be focused on that same decision factor every time for lots of different deals and lots of different industries and see which markets um, seemed like good opportunities. So let's talk about consumer markets. Why were you so... Uh interested or attracted to, to them? I think because there were products that I used. I remember some of the first few projects I did in consulting were in industries like lint rollers and car accessories and, you know, those, those cranes that you, you like use to pick up toys when you're a kid at right. an amusement park. And, you know, those were products that I had used and touched and had opinions on and it was just interesting to think about the decisions that made into that went into building those businesses and what made them successful. And then why going into a fund of funds? What was the, what, why did you make that decision? Because I mean, it's quite different from, from what you were doing, no? Yeah. So I had been advising private equity investors on whether to invest in deals. And I wanted to, I, I was fascinated by both the portfolio company strategies and the investment strategies and wanted to come at the same industry from another angle. So I joined a fund of funds where I was responsible for assessing whether or not to fund the private equity and venture investors themselves. Got it. I mean, uh, now, you know, there's fund of funds, you know, all over the place, but I guess back then, I mean, we're talking about 2007, what was the landscape like? For fund of funds? Yeah. For um, venture capital. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, the fund of funds that I joined was pretty unique because um, one, it had fantastic access to some of the best portfolio managers and two, the source of capital was different from other funded funds at the time. I don't know how it's evolved now, but the, the source of funding was from high net worth individuals. So it had a really, um, strong investor relations arm because we were aggregating access from smaller checks to get into venture um, deals that normally, you know, a private investor couldn't access. So it was interesting, you know, both from the investor relations perspective and from the, um, venture capital strategic perspective. I guess for the VCs that are, that are listening right now, let, let's put them on the hot seat. I guess the, um, what were, what were some of the key traits on, on those fund managers that, that really, you know, had what it take, you know, to really receive an investment from you guys? Like what were some of those common traits that you were seeing? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a there's a template that I think most fund of funds use to evaluate a venture manager. And so, you know, the first thing you look at is, is this an emerging manager or somebody who has a proven track record? And for the most part, you know, we were focused on proven managers with a small part of the portfolio um, allocated to new funds. Um, and then for, you know, for these for these funds, we were looking at the team, you know, who is on the team? How long have they been there? Um, how do they jive together? What different expertise does each member bring? We were looking at the firm strategy. So how big is the fund size? What type of deals are they trying to get into? Um, you know, how can they access them? How do they evaluate them? We were looking at their track record. So let's look at their historical portfolio. 
what is the return overall, what is the return by sector, what's the return by company type and by team member. Um, and, you know, then of course, terms, um, what, you know, what are the terms that we're getting as an investor in this fund? Very cool. And then at what point did you say, hey, you know, I think it's time to go back to study and you went and did your, your MBA at Wharton? Yeah. So while I was there, um, was surrounded and mentored by a lot of folks who had been to business school and realized that it would be a really great moment in my career to take a step back. You know, I'd spent five years exposed to the private equity and venture world um, as a consultant, as an investor, and um, really wanted to, you know, kind of dive deeply into a lot of different areas that I had had exposure to in a classroom setting and also build my network. Very nice. And Wharton is, is fantastic. I mean, we've had, you know, also on the show, people like Jeff, you know, from, from Harry's and, and Warby Parker's. I mean, well, the community there, I guess the ecosystem of founders is just out of this world. I mean, how was, how was for you, you know, having that exposure and perhaps being able to build that network there? Um, it was incredible. I mean, while we were at school, it's, you know, you, you don't know where people will end up. We're certainly encouraged to, you know, um, pursue entrepreneurial activities. And there's a lot of focus on coming up with ideas and, you know, trying to execute on them, failing, learning from that. Um, and I think it really was a, a wonderful place to be and have been so impressed by, um, you know, where a lot of the folks from that community are today. And why did you decide to go back to corporate America rather than going at it? So when I was coming out of school in 2011, had been thinking a great deal about doing something in the early stage startup community, but um, the economy hadn't fully recovered and I didn't see a lot of interesting early stage, you know, highly venture backable consumer ideas and um, had spent the summer at a management consulting firm and, you know, really enjoyed the exposure there. Um, and decided, you know, this could only, this is like a continuation of the MBA program. It can only better me and make me think bigger. You know, I, I find, I find that you are a very dangerous founder, but I guess in the positive way, right? So I think you have the, <laughs> what does that the, mean? <laughs> I mean, let, let me tell you, because I mean, some of the best founders that I find are those that have the expertise on either consulting on investing or, you know, investment banking, I mean, you have it all. So, I mean, it's a, it's unbelievable. So I guess, you know, for you, you know, like you did this and this was the immediate step uh, before, you know, like going at it, you know, like, like before, not, not before your, your venture, uh, because then you went to this at the company, but, but I guess, you know, why do you think that so many of the successful founders out there, you know, have that experience with consulting? I don't know. Um, you know, it feels like I don't, I haven't found that consulting is a necessary precursor to what I'm doing today, but I have found it as a really useful skill set. Um, now that I'm here to kind of sift through all the noise and prioritize and, and move quickly on things that matter. Cause I think, um, consulting helps you, um, uh, in structured thinking in general. So I, I don't think it's a ne necessarily a precursor, but I do think it's a helpful skill set to have once you are doing something that requires a lot of navigating through ambiguity. So how do you filter through the noise, Alex? I make frameworks and slides, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So then in, in, in the Boston Consulting Group, you were there for about two years and then you uh, went to Flurry. So why, why did you go to Flurry? So I knew I wanted to move over to the startup world. Um, I wanted to go um, 
work for a high growth company, but something that was proven. So, you know, several rounds of funding, a strong leadership team in place, um, and really um, kind of plug into, you know, a function with a strong mentor and team and experience what it was like. I think, you know, in the back of my mind, an earlier stage startup sounded even more exciting to me, but I was pretty risk averse and had been, you know, at big companies for a few years and, and wanted to kind of crawl, walk, run into the experience. Because how big was Flurry when you joined them? Flurry had over a hundred people when I joined, I think maybe closer to 150. They, the company was based in San Francisco, but had a 20 or 25 person New York satellite office, which is what I joined. So I had the benefit of feeling like I was on a small team in a very startup environment, but also as part of a, you know, a larger organization. So were you able to experience the acquisition process? So I was there through the company's acquisition, but I wasn't there um, through integration. So I, my last week was actually the my first week at Yahoo. Got it. And obviously integrations are a beast. So why don't we talk about, uh, Alex, about the moment where you met your co-founder? Because I know that you guys were actually, you know, sharing, you know, the same space there at Flurry. So, so I met my co-founder because our husbands actually had worked together. Um, and they, um, all, both of our husbands and my co-founder Jordana were at, um, some work event the summer of 2014. Um, and Jordana had an idea to change the feminine care industry and specifically to launch a subscription business in tampons. And she was talking about the idea. And I remember my husband coming home that night and saying to me, I met this really interesting woman who has a fantastic business idea and a lot of passion for it. I feel like you should just meet her. It would be awesome. And also you both are from, you know, you're both from the Upper West Side. You went to the same college. There are a lot of similarities. You'll hit it off. So we, we kind of got set up on a friend date. And I think that was, pro that was April of 2014. And we spent a few months together talking about the idea, doing, you know, some consumer research together, building out a financial model for the business. Um, but at that point, it felt much more like a project than, than building a company. And we were really just trying each other on and seeing if the idea had legs. So at what point were you like, okay, this has legs, let's, let's go at it? Um, it was, a, you know, a process over the course of several months to, to determine that together. And I think, um, you know, we, we officially became business partners Labor Day that year. So, you know, had done a handful of focus groups and talked to consumers about how they felt about the products category, had done some early brand work together where we, you know, sketched out what we thought the brand look and feel could be, um, you know, thought about the technology, had, had met with suppliers and manufacturers, and um, it really felt like uh, there was a need and we knew how to build toward it. And, you know, here you are, <clears throat> you've been for almost a decade, you know, working with your nice nine to five where you get the paycheck no matter what, <laughs> and you get to close the lights and go home and enjoy uh, but why, I mean, did it feel scary? I mean, uh, why did you complicate your life like that? <laughs> well, one, I think you have, <laughs> you have a nice rosy picture of consulting. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mean, I was used to work being my life and that was something that I did in my twenties and, um, loved and, you know, okay. uh, that that's just w what I'm like, I think. Um, yeah. I think the, the scary thing for me was doing something with such an obvious 
um, success or failure. Nothing I had done before really ever reflected on me in that same way. I was, you know, historically joining things and um, joining successful companies and taking a small part in the outcome versus conceiving of a new idea that may or may not work and doing everything in my power to make it successful. Got it. Got it. So then let's talk about that uh, that process. So you and Jordana, your co-founder, you guys uh, were, you know, seeing if this had legs or not. Then finally, you know, like you start building some models, they start to get some shape. Uh, and at what point is that that moment where you, where it's really truly visible to you that this is your next path forward and your next phase in your professional career? Um, so I think there are probably three moments. One was when we had our DTR, which, um, you know, was our defining the relationship conversation and decided to be business partners. And okay. that was a moment where it really felt like we're, we both love this and we're in this together and we're doing this. And that, you know, verbal commitment happened over dinner and it was a meaningful moment. Um, the second was we did a series of focus groups, some of which um, went through the fall of 2014. And we sat in a room with women in all different cities across the U.S. asking them what they thought about their periods, what they thought about the products and brands in this category. And we, you know, it took a few minutes to get those conversations going because the topics were so highly stigmatized and no one had talked about these subjects before. Yeah. But by the end of the night, we could not end the sessions. Nobody wanted to leave the room. They went on for hours and hours. And we really felt like we tapped into something special, which was there are no conversations in women's reproductive care. And if we can bring that to market and actually drive open conversation, then women will make informed choices in this product category. And then I think the third and most tangible signal to me that this had legs was we started talking to investors fall of 2014 also. And, you know, it, it just became clear that this idea was attracting attention of people who wanted to back, you know, strong founders with big opportunities and they wanted to make money and they saw this as a way to make money. Um, it kind of gave us the final, um, vote of confidence that, um, all of, you know, all of the things that we were seeing were aligned for success. So how was the process like of, uh, having a, a conversation with, let's say with, a with a male investor, you know, uh, where you're just like telling them about a tampon. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, what was their so, face? What, what so was their face? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I do all day. Okay. Um, so it's been a really interesting process. We've, we've now been in business for four years and, you know, had been working on it and raising money a year before. And I think the conversation has changed a lot since when we started the company. Um, when we went out to raise, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in the fall of 2014, we basically met with any angel investor we could possibly find as well as really early stage seed, um, investors. And we essentially had to go to those meetings with our tampon prototypes and take them out of the wrapper and dunk them in water and show what a tampon did and how it expanded, um, and really educate, which I think was, you know, a, a big challenge, but also a really big advantage to us as entrepreneurs to be educating our investor on the industry before really doing our pitch. I mean, I, I would have loved to be on those sessions, you know, like waiting for <laughs> when the time where they give feedback, no? Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of those conversations 
um, resulted in the male investors taking home a batch of our tampons for their wives, girlfriends, um, friends. And then we would have to wait a whole cycle for feedback, like an actual period cycle. We would wait until their spouse got their period and then used our product and then we'd have to hear back. So it was a little bit, I think, slower than potentially other companies. <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine. So I guess, uh, tell us about this process then. So, so you were getting some feedback from investors and I'm sure that you guys were optimizing a little bit more of the model. So what did the uh, business model ended up being? Um, so at that point, it was a very simple business model. We were raising, we, we were trying to start a subscription service um, for cotton tampons. And, you know, we thought about it in, in this way, we're, we're reinventing three things. One, the brand, you know, the brands that are out there are stale and ugly packaging and don't get you. Um, you know, all the other brands in your bathroom are brands that you believe in and products that you want to leave out on your shelf, not throw under the sink. So, you know, the brand experience is broken Two was product. Um, when you look at the side of a box of tampons, it says ingredients may contain, and that's not good enough. This product should have ingredients transparency. And, you know, if the FDA isn't going to regulate that and the big brands aren't going to put the ingredients on the box, we will. Um, and three was delivery and service model. So, you know, customers are getting every product in their lives delivered to, delivered to their homes, often in a subscription model or a format that makes sense for them in the category, but not in this category. Why not? So we put in place a subscription service that delivered one or two boxes of tampons every four to eight weeks. Um, and you could customize what was in the box, which was also another problem in the industry that um, tampons and, you know, the, the mix isn't one size fits all women need different things. And to be able to customize the assortment of tampons down to the skew actually matters a lot to her. And I guess, uh, what were some of the challenges then on, on, uh, you know, from the logistics and on a subscription, you know, like business, you know, type, type, type like this one, you know, what were some of the challenges that you guys were experiencing? Um, you know, everything was a challenge and an opportunity because there were just two of us and we, you know, we didn't, we wanted to stay lean. We didn't want to build out a big team from the beginning. We, we raised $1.2 million and, um, you know, we're really focused on getting the best product and brand to market as leanly as possible. And I think the, the biggest challenge for us then, and continues to be, um, messaging and driving awareness because for the most part, you know, the American consumer isn't thinking about what's in this product. And, you know, she's exercised the ingredients muscle in every other category. What's in my food, what's in my shampoo, what's in my skincare, what's in this diaper. But for some reason with tampons and other reproductive items, even condoms, um, women aren't asking themselves, Hey, what's in this? Because there's so much stigma and there's no conversation around it. And, you know, our, our challenge is to drive that open dialogue to, to enable women to be informed in this category. And why do you think it was, there was no conversation around it? Why do you think that people get embarrassed when they have to talk about this stuff? I mean, I think there's just societal stigma and we're all trained to not talk about it. And it, it, it continues from generation to generation. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I guess uh, over time, what, what, how did the, um, you know, conversations with investors, like how were those expectations changing? Because you guys have raised quite a bit of money already, right? Yeah. So we've raised $35 million now over four rounds. Um, you know, the first round was really about getting enough money to get the business off the ground and getting people to believe in the, you know, near term concept of the business, which was building a brand and a subscription service in tampons. Um, over the course of the last, you know, four or five years of interacting with hundreds of thousands of 
um, consumers and community members, what we've learned is that the same lack of conversation drives the same lack of information and informed decision-making in every reproductive health category. So whether it's her first period to when she's thinking about having sex to when she's, you know, thinking about her fertility and maybe pregnant postpartum in perimenopause, menopause, and beyond, you know, women are going through universal life stages and not talking about any of their needs, content, product, community, um, because of stigma. And so our mission now has gotten much, much greater and bigger, which is to be there for her at every life stage from her first period to her last hot flash. And, um, so tampons is really just where we started, but now when we meet with investors, we're sharing the bigger mission and purpose of the company, um, which again, you know, is something that resonates with many, but of course, um, with a male investor community, we continue to have to educate around the lifelong needs, uh, and what reproductive reality is like for women through the course of their lives. And talking about education here, Alex, I think that the, uh, obviously you had the challenge with educating investors, but then also educating your own uh, customers. Uh, and I, and I believe, especially at the beginning, you know, it's about getting creative with the marketing, you know, and how you onboard people and how you get people to, to really subscribe, uh, because you don't have the money there. You still don't have like the big money to, to do, you know, the marketing pushes. So I guess, how did you go, you know, about onboarding these customers early on and how did you go about educating them? So at first, um, we did a lot of grassroots marketing and, you know, talked to as many people as we could and, um, had a community of hundreds of brand ambassadors and, you know, the hard part there was getting women to equate their feminine care with their overall health and wellness. And I think, you know, we were very concerned about the barrier of even getting women to talk about this subject because of the stigma. But for the most part, um, women had just not been asked to talk about it. Um, and once asked, there wasn't that much embarrassment we found. So, um, it really was about how to get them to equate this with their health and wellness. And, um, you know, we as consumers ourselves thought of this category as just as important as what's in our food or our skincare. And, you know, just in having those conversations started to see people's mindsets shift to include tampons and pads and now sexual health products in the same thought process. And, you know, it, it was very important to us to make sure that we were asking consumers questions in the right way that didn't make them defensive. Like, Hey, do you know what's in your product felt like a little bit aggressive of a way and, you know, to ask the question and we didn't get positive reactions with that framing. But when we started asking people, Hey, have you ever wondered what's in a tampon? Suddenly it opened up a safe conversation and we could really get, we could really get the dialogue going. And what were some of the channels that were the most effective when you were trying to run a lean operation and, and onboard people? So at the very beginning, um, we did everything we could to build the business for free. So ambassadors, uh, referral, giving out free products. We were very focused on press and, you know, gaining brand credibility by being talked about in the right places by the right people in the right tone. Um, over time, we started to advertise with paid marketing. So kind of, you know, the usual startup playbook of Facebook and Instagram and, you know, a lot of other digital channels and experimented a lot there over the first few years and kind of more recently in the last one or two years have advertised more on some offline channels like direct mail or television, radio. Um, but really for us, it's less about the channel and more about being able to convey the story. And, you know, to be frank, that is another challenge for the brand 
um, because we're, we're introducing a problem and then solving it. And a lot of brands, I think just have to do the latter, you know, you have a problem or a need. So, um, in this category, because, you know, many women don't realize they don't know what's in these products already, and they don't realize the full story. Um, storytelling is a really important piece of what we're doing. And often, um, the, the channel in which we're telling the story, uh, you know, can help or hinder amplification of that story, depending on the format. And I think that storytelling is applied to everything, no? whether it's onboarding customers or onboarding investors or or whatever that is, or or, or even top tier talent, no? to to your to your team. So I guess the um, how 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 do you go about that? Like what in you know from what you've seen and experienced and also done, what are the key elements of uh, of a great story? What a great question. Um, I think empathy is the most important factor to whether your story will land. So you could, you could tell the Lola story or tell any business story in a vacuum, a hundred different ways all day long. But if you don't understand who's listening to the story and what their interests are and whether they care, um, the story won't land. So, you know, you have to tell, there's no like elevator pitch necessarily. It's, you know, what is the story for the person in that moment. And I think that that is the key to, t- to telling something great. Got it. And I see as well that you guys uh, very recently, you know, as of last year, you raised the Series B. Uh, so I'm, I'm just wondering here, like, what is that uh, change or that shift of gears from going to like early stage to all what of is, a sudden you're like, like in growth? What is the strategic shift? What is the strategic yeah, so, shift um, and what, what does it look like when you're like in that, in that ship, riding the ship? Yeah. So every time we finance the business, we're doing it with a specific, you know, forward looking milestone based plan, usually for 18 to 24 months. And for us, when we raised the series B, we were a single product, a, a single category company, just periods. Um, and we also had, I think 16 people on the team. So we were very, very lean. Um, and since then, um, you know, have really focused on growth, brand building products, extension and innovation and team building. Uh, and that is, you know, where we've invested capital since that raise a year and a half ago. Um, the team has tripled, you know, we've entered a new product product category, sexual wellness, and also, um, are kind of planning to, to relaunch products with improvements, innovate in new categories, um, and have also clearly invested in marketing and, you know, growing our awareness and reach. And as you were saying now, you know, like you've, you're, you've been launching like new products, you know, like obviously you have, you started with tampons and then, you know, you're like expanding a little bit more the, the offering. What is that process? What does the process look like on, on coming up with perhaps like a new product or a new a concept idea and then saying, Hey, you know, let's, let's actually go full force with launching this to the market. So, so the thing I would say is that everything we bring to market, whether it's a physical product, community, content, you know, tech product, every single thing we bring to market has its origins in what does she need? What does the customer need? Um, and from a, you know, from a physical product perspective, um, we're constantly talking to our community and surveying them and understanding what they want and need um, and what their problems are and how we could possibly solve them. And, um, I think that's really the, the beauty of our, our business that started in direct to consumer, because we have that direct touch point and that has been magical for us to be able to bounce things off her all the time. Like I can, you know, remember back to a time when we launched the business in Jordana and I would have 
video chats with customers all the time and talk to them about the products and see, you know, what they thought, what they liked. Um, you know, we even learned that, uh, it was hard to talk about tampons because there aren't words in the English language really that are universally known for the two different pieces (laughs) of the plastic applicator. Like how do you even talk about this product? Nobody talks about it. So there aren't even words to talk about. Um, but you know, as we think about our product strategy now and going forward, we want to be in all the key um, categories where women need um, ingredients transparency and better conversation and community and reproductive health. So currently we're in periods and sexual wellness. Um, within those categories so far, we've offered the core products in, you know, as natural um, a format as works for women in addition to innovative products. Um, for example, in the period portfolio, we have a first period kit, which was born from consumer uh, need that, you know, parents didn't know how to talk to their 11, 12, 13 year old daughters about their first periods. And why wasn't there a kit that had all of the products they needed, tampons, pads, and liners, you know, with a book describing what's happening to my changing body and a pouch that the, you know, the adolescents could use to carry the products. It just, you know, it didn't make sense that that didn't exist. So we introduced the first, first period kit. Um, so every category, you know, we're just trying to think about what are the core needs and also how can we innovate to make the category better? And we'll be moving category by category through reproductive health. Do you think we're at a point in time, Alex, where we're experiencing somehow a culture and, and mindset shift? A culture and mindset shift in yeah, what way? Where, when, where people are maybe like a little bit more open to, to, to discuss and to, and to perhaps, you know, like listen to, to initiatives of this nature and to have conversations, you know, like probably you guys have, have experienced this because you're so close to your customers and, and maybe, you know, like from the conversations that you're having now with people compared to the conversations that you were having back then, let's say in 2014, where you started the business. I think so. Um, and I think, you know, part of that is definitely due to the conversation that we as a brand are driving. Like if I went on to you know, the New York Times website when we started the business five years ago and looked at periods or even if I looked up tampons, um, there, there weren't a lot of articles. That wasn't a topic of conversation versus now if I look on there, um, there's been a lot of conversation on that topic in the last five years. And it's not just business related, but it's also advocacy related and, you know, conversations around why are there 33 states in the United States that actually tax period products, um, are we, why are we taxing necessities, but not taxing things like barbecue sunflower seeds? <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, I think that, that absolutely, um, women's reproductive health has become a much more frequently discussed conversation yeah. and, um, it's really exciting to see. Really cool. And one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is if you had the opportunity to go back in time, you know, like maybe, you know, you have that opportunity to, to speak to the younger self, to that younger Alex that was still at Flurry and maybe thinking about, you know, the next journey and perhaps launching a business. Knowing what you know now, because you, you've probably learned a ton, you know, during this past five years on, on building, scaling, you know, the highs, the lows. What would be that piece of advice that you would give to your younger self before launching a business and why? Hmm. Well, I think one piece of advice that's coming to mind is do it younger. Um, you know, we started the business, I was in my early thirties and I think, um, 
definitely benefited from, you know, 10 years of working beforehand and developing a lot of skill sets that I use all day, every day. But also I think that once you do it, it's less scary. Um, and you know, in my head, it was scarier to take the leap than it actually was in reality. And so, and I can't describe, you know, the, the fast paced learning, uh, that I've experienced in the last five years relative to, to being other places. And I think there's nothing more exciting professionally, at least for, for me than building a business and learning every single aspect of the business. And, um, I, you know, I almost wish I had done it sooner. So for the folks that are listening that perhaps are right now in corporate America and thinking whether or not to make the jump, or maybe they have this side project that is doing well, but they're too scared from jumping, what would you tell them? There's no right time. You know, um, if you can figure out a way to, to do it financially, um, and, you know, set yourself up, um, to, you know, to, for, for the risk and no, I, you know, I'll try this for a year and save up to be able to do that. Um, I think it, it, you know, it's less scary to get off the track than it really is. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. All righty, Alex. So for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, well, you can come visit our website, mylola.com. We're Lola on Instagram. Um, and you know, please reach out directly through our customer team. We'd be happy to chat with anybody. Amazing. Alex, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.